We've shared a lot of scripture with you this morning, but I want to, in view of what we've just sung, I'm going to ask you just right now to bow your heads. You can remain standing, be seated, kneel down, whatever posture of worship you want to take at this moment. But knowing we were going to be singing this song and just aware of, of many, many of the burdens that you are carrying, many of us are carrying today, I was drawn to Psalm 68, 19, and I want you to listen to these words, and, and I'm going to invite you just to, to respond in a prayerful way. Psalm 68, 19 says, Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. The reason we can say it is well, even when we don't feel like it, even when it doesn't seem well, is because we have a God who daily bears our burdens. A God to whom, on, on one sense, there's such a mystery to, to whom no burden we can bring him is too great, and, and yet no burden we can bring him is too small. He cares about it all because he cares about us, and he loves us. And uh, I don't know if you came carrying a burden today, but again, just right now, as our heads are bowed, as our eyes are closed, as we are hopefully just thinking on the mercies and the kindness of God, I want to invite you to do something, and, and maybe this is just a little bit different, but if you've got a burden just to lay before the Lord today, I, I want you to bring it before him in prayer, quietly in your heart, whatever that, that may be like, but I want you to do something. We talk, we've begun talking more in recent months about the posture of prayer, and, and Jesse's already spoken to us about how worship is a, I guess, a holistic experience. Jesus says that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I want to invite you to do something right now, right where you're standing, and that is as you lay whatever burden you came carrying down in prayer at the Lord's feet, just maybe take your hands before you and just open them as a physical sign that you are releasing the burden to him. If you're so inclined to lift your hands up, open hands up before the Lord, you say, but I'm not a hand raiser. Well, nobody's looking, but God is. And I've learned through my own trials and challenges that one of the things that releases burden, that releases heartache is to speak, to share it with somebody else. Confession is good for the soul, but... But I think that, that a physical act is sometimes good as well. So I'm just going to be quiet here for the next 30 seconds as you quietly, silently lay your burden this morning before the Lord. Do it in your heart, but, but I invite you to do it with your hands. Open your hands to the Lord and say, Lord, this thing, it is yours. Lord, I hold my hands out to you. I raise my hands up to you and I say, Lord, despite everything that tells me otherwise, it is well with my soul because you are God who bears my burdens. Let's just on our own go before him right now. Take your burden to him who loves you. Even now, he's listening to your prayer. Even now, he, is, he already knows, but, but as you agree with him that he is the one to, to bear the burden, he wants to replace your burden with joy, that captivity with freedom, that ache with relief. He is the God who daily bears your burden. I'm just going to pray as always now and then I'm going to ask the team just as we come out of prayer to just lead us through the chorus one more time just starting with through it all through it all my eyes are on you 
through it all, through it all, it is well. So, Father, we come before you this morning, and, and today's a good day in so many ways as we celebrate mothers, as, as we remember your kindness to, to so many of us through our moms, our grandmoms, mother figures in our lives. Lord, it's a good day as we've dedicated Jesse and, and Stacia and their ministry here to you. We've sung your praise, and uh, yet, Father, we know that, that, that there are always burdens in our midst to be born. There are heartaches, illnesses, challenges. Father, we thank you that you are the God who bears all of our burdens, who gladly takes them, who gives us a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness, who replaces our sadness with joy. Father, we thank you that every burden represented here this morning is under your providential sovereign hand, and that each one of us here today is the object of your relentless love. Father, we've packed a lot in already this morning, and we're going to look at your word just for a little while here before we, before we call it a morning and go about our day. And I pray that as we do that, Lord, even with all that we have said and sung and prayed and heard, that you would now, as we have worshipped you with our voices, now we come to worship you with the word, that you would speak what you want our souls to hear through the message of scripture that we have to bring. Father, we invite as always, we plead with you, Holy Spirit, to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from distraction, and to help us to see Jesus. For it is Jesus this morning we came to see. May we see him clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. May we see him only this morning in the preaching of your word. And when we leave in a while, may it be, Father, renewed and refreshed that even though our circumstances haven't changed, Lord, our hearts have been changed. We love you. We trust you. We pray in the strong name of Jesus, and we want once more to sing in agreement with you that it is well because you are Lord. Let's sing once more that chorus together. It is well with your soul this morning. Say amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as always, as you take your seats, boys and girls, we're going to dismiss you for Children's Church right now. You know, we're already, we've done so much, but we do want to spend some time here in God's Word, and I assure you that uh, just in God's good timing and His grace, the message is a little bit shorter than usual, so we're going to have time for I think everything today, and I, I really do want to share with you what God has laid on my heart from the scriptures this morning from the book of Ruth. So I invite you right now, if you don't have a Bible out already, to take it and turn in it and meet me in Ruth chapter 4. I want you to meet me this morning in Ruth chapter 4, where while we are not even halfway through this larger series, this series of world changers talking about the extraordinary stories of Ruth and Esther. We're not even halfway through the series as a whole, but this morning we are at the conclusion of the story of Ruth. 
and, and it's covered a lot of ground. We've seen many, many things. And, and, and it's really cool because in God's own arrangement, in God's own uh, design, uh, we call them often coincidences here at Maranatha. Uh, I didn't know when I laid this series out uh, that this is the sermon we would be in or this is the passage we'd be in on Mother's Day. But I think you're going to see in a moment that it is quite appropriate. So while this isn't a Mother's Day sermon per se, it, uh, it is very much speaks to uh, the joy and the blessing and the importance of motherhood, of parenthood as well. We need to get right to it, so I'm going to begin reading this morning. In Ruth chapter 4, verse 13, and I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter, end of the book, where this is what the Bible says. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, Ruth 4, 13, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life, and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron was born Ram, to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashan, to Nashan Salmon, to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse was born David. So seven months into married life. And just as I was about to graduate from college many years ago, my wife Beth and I discovered we were expecting our first child. That wasn't in our plan, but it was in God's plan. And we very quickly became aware that life was going to change. And, and as we began to share that news, the news that we were about to become parents, uh, several people's reactions stand out as particularly memorable as we shared it with family and friends. But at least in my mind, perhaps no response, no reaction uh, has stuck with me longer than that of one of my professors, one of my Bible college professors, who when we, when we told him, we, we met him in the hallway one day of, of our school up at Emmaus Bible College, and, and, and as we told him that we were expecting our first child, uh, he, after congratulating us on the good news, looked us in the aisle, sort of smiled, and he said, you know, Aaron and Beth, he said, getting married didn't really change your lives all that much. And then he smiled a whole lot wider and he said, but this will. And then he sort of cackled and walked away. And you know, at the time I didn't understand the cackle. I didn't really get the laughter, but I do now. Because I have discovered, as you have discovered, that if you have had a child, a baby's birth changes everything. It changes your priorities. It it changes your finances. It not only changes, it obliterates your sleep patterns for years and years and years to come. And no doubt Obed's birth, as recorded here at the end of Ruth chapter 4, did all of those things, changed all of those things that parenthood always does in a family's life. But as we are about to see, as I want to show you in the time we have together this morning, the birth of baby Obed did more. Since in keeping with our, our series theme, this theme of world changers, 
His arrival, his birth in the little town of Bethlehem some 3,000 years ago, I say with no sense of hyperbole or exaggeration whatsoever, this baby's birth changed the world. The birth of Obed changed the world. And in the time we have together, I want to give you four reasons why. We're going to move quickly. We're going to move in terms of scope from lesser to greater. But I see four reasons why this was a world-changing moment. Because, first of all, number one, through Obed's birth, what we need to see in the text this morning is that a family was saved. Through the birth of this baby, the first thing we see in verse 13 is that a family was saved. Because along with affirming, verse 13 that is, that every act of conception is a miracle of God. That every life from the moment of conception is life and it is precious. That's what we're told indirectly in verse 13. Along with affirming that, really, that's what verse 13 reminds us this whole story has been about. A family's salvation. A family's rescue. Because remember, if you remember back to chapter 1, the book of Ruth opens with a legacy of loss. It begins with a famine that forces the family of Elimelech, his wife Naomi, their two sons, away from their home in Bethlehem to the foreign country of Moab. They are now refugees. That's where it begins. And and in that foreign land, there were three untimely deaths that resulted in two widowed women, after a decade or more away in the land of Moab, returning home to Bethlehem, merely hoping, their only hope is to survive. Can we live another day? Can we find food to eat? They returned home empty, heartbroken, and in Naomi's case, by her own confession, bitter. Bitter with the the curveballs that life had thrown her. But here in the end, look at verse 13. In the span of what is just 15 words in, in the original Hebrew text, what we see, as one writer puts it, is in this moment, by chapter 4, verse 13, quote, deep sorrow turned to radiant joy. Deep sorrow becomes radiant joy because as kinsman redeemer, we've been talking about that for weeks now, Boaz, he steps up, he takes on this role, he marries Ruth, and they, they have a son And through the birth of that son, what they have been trying, what what Naomi and Ruth have been seeking all along, has in fact now been assured. Elimelech's line will not die out. The family will remain. The name will remain. The land will remain. All these things that may not mean a lot to us, but they meant everything in the ancient Jewish culture. All that they were about to lose was rescued through one baby's birth. And, And I have you note as well, Not just what it did for the family, but what it did for Ruth personally. Follow her journey, because actually this is the last time she's mentioned in the book. This is the last thing we are told about her. You see, she began, if you recall, as an impoverished refugee in chapter 2. She then moved in short order to something less than a hired hand, a gleaner. One who in poverty collected scraps in order to survive. But you get to chapter 3, and she has apparently moved from something less than a hired hand to one of Boaz's maidservants. That means he was in, she was in his employ. She was on the, the payroll. And now here in chapter 4, verse 13, again, where Ruth is mentioned for the final time, she's a wife and a mother, now prosperous and secure and loved. The first thing I want you to see that this baby's birth did through Obed's birth, a family was saved good news after so much sadness. Now, for Naomi's part, Obed's birth did a second thing. That's primarily what it did. Not primarily, but partially what it did for Ruth. 
But for Naomi personally, the birth of Obed did a second thing. Not only did it save a family, it lifted a burden. Through Obed's birth, a burden was lifted. You know, the case has been made many, many times by many different people down through the years that though this book we've been studying is named for Ruth, it's really Naomi's story. More attention is given to Naomi than anyone else. And, and certainly, in the context of the story, no one suffered more deeply than Naomi did in a whole variety of ways. Twice a refugee. She endured the loss of her husband and both of her sons through death. She endured the loss of a daughter-in-law by choice. And remember, if you will, if you just go back a page, if you would with me for a moment, to the end of Ruth chapter 1, remember... Remember where it landed her, at least in terms of the condition of heart. When she came back to town and, and all her old friends said, Is this Naomi? Could it be her? She says to them in Ruth 1, verse 20, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why would you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me? And the Almighty has afflicted me. But here's the thing, while at the time they may have honored that request, they may have called her Mara, bitter for a time. Here in chapter 4, they were having none of it. Look again at chapter 4, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer in terms of taking Ruth as his wife. Obed is the redeemer of the family here for Naomi. That's what they're saying to her. He has not left you without a redeemer today. May his name become famous in Israel. May he be to you a, a restorer of life, a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. And while you lost two sons, she is better to you than seven sons. She has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The, the term means his guardian, his primary caregiver. So here's what I want you to see. That, that while on one hand, no one in the, the book of Ruth suffered more deeply than Naomi did. No one benefited more through Obed's birth. Had her life turned around completely more than she did. Because through Obed's birth, death gave way to life. Joy overtook sorrow, and her empty arms were once again filled. And I'd have you note, this is important. That change, God was the providential one, the sovereign one, orchestrating the change, bringing it all about. We understand that, and we don't minimize that in any way. But I want you to notice that it didn't change from a human perspective, because Naomi somehow just kind of sucked it up. And, and pulled herself up by, the, uh, by her own proverbial bootstraps that she decided, I'm just not going to take it anymore, and I'm going to do something to change it, change my situation for myself. And I want you to see this. No, the reason Naomi's bitterness left was because at her lowest point, when life, as far as we and she could tell, could not get any worse, I want you to see what she did. In the literal midpoint of the book, chapter 3, verse 1, she chose... At her lowest point, and I think here's where on the human side of the equation things changed. She chose to serve someone else in need. She chose to minister to another's needs. Then Naomi, chapter 3, verse 1, her mother-in-law said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek security for you that it may be, that it may be well with you? She was in a position where you'd say, well, she's entitled to all the sympathy and sorrow and pity and help 
And, and she was. But I think everything changed when she stepped out of that pit of sorrow. And, and even though she still was, was bearing those burdens and those heartaches, began to serve someone else. Here's what I'm saying. As always, God was working out his sovereign plan. But by stepping out in obedient faith, Naomi entered in completely to what God was doing. She was no longer a passive observer, just letting life carry her along. She entered into what God was doing. And through the chain of events that her actions launched, seeking the welfare, the well-being of her daughter-in-law, a chain of events was launched that resulted in the birth of this baby Obed. And through which not only was the family saved, number one, her burden was lifted. Number two, third, not only that, the, the news just gets better. And as I said, the, the scope only broadens. There's a third thing that Obed's birth did. It not only saved a family and lifted a burden, but through Obed's birth, verse 17 tells us a king was given. Through the birth of Obed, a king was given. Now, obviously, no one knew that at the time. No one recognized what this baby's life was going to become and, and what his, his generations, the, uh, the subsequent generations would bring. But in the, here's what I want you to know. In the, in the author's mind, the author of the book of Ruth, whoever he or she may have been, that was among the very chief reasons this story needed to be told. And I believe it is the chief reason that God has it here in our Bibles still today. That through Obed's birth, a king was going to be given. Because after verse, look at verse 17. After it says, the neighbor women gave him a name. Imagine that, leaving it, think of who your neighbors are, allowing them to name your child, right? I don't know that we'd all want to do that, but, but they picked a winner here, all right? It says, they gave him a name, saying a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. You know what Obed means? Worshiper. Worshiper. They named the baby Worshipper. How's that for a blessing to start out your life? How's that for a, a direction to go as you grow up? They named him Worshipper. And he is the father of Jesse, who became the father of David. And, and you know, if anything, here's where I believe we find the significance of this story for Mother's Day, this particular occasion we are celebrating this morning. Because here's the thing, the scriptures tell us nothing about Obed. We don't know what he did for a living, we don't know how long he lived, we don't know how big a family he ended up having, we don't know any of that stuff. He's only mentioned here, and the only other times his name is used anywhere in scripture is in genealogies. We don't know a single thing about this guy except that he was named Obed, and Obed meant worshiper. But, but the fact that he became the father of Jesse, who became the father of David, right, the man after God's own heart, Israel's greatest, godliest king. You know what that suggests to me? <laughs> Parenting matters. Parenting matters. Motherhood matters. It means we must earnestly, earnestly seek God's direction and strenuously seek his help in raising the children and the grandchildren that God entrusts to us. None of us is a perfect parent. We're all far from it. But it means we need to seek the help of the Lord. Because you don't, you don't become the man after God's own heart by accident, right? Somewhere along the way, if you've got a grandfather named Worshipper, you're probably starting out pretty well, but they still had to apply themselves 
to the task. They still had to dig in. And again, we don't know the details of it, but we know this. We need to seek the Lord's direction because child raising, listen to me, it's a sacred trust. It's a sacred trust. Because who knows what God has in mind for the little ones we hold in our arms today and who are growing up under our roofs as well. We don't know what God has in mind for them. We don't know whose parent they may become. We don't know whose life they may interact with. We don't know what God has chosen for them. Naomi didn't know that her grandson, she had no idea that her grandson was going to grow up to be granddad to Israel's greatest king, but God knew, and that was God's plan. And listen, and and I'm speaking this first to me and then to the rest of you. I know you love your kids and your grandkids immensely. Here's my question. Are you raising them to follow Jesus? Or are you just settling for trying to make them happy? To follow their dreams or your dreams for them. There's a difference. Do you want them to be happy or do you want them to follow Jesus? And those things aren't mutually exclusive, but one must come before the other. If we're going to raise worshipers, if there's going to be a chance for them to serve the Lord. They didn't know it at the time, but a king was going to be given the birth of Obed. A family was rescued, number one. A burden was lifted, number two. A king was given, number three. Fourth and finally, through Obed's birth, I've suggested it already, the world was in fact changed. Through one baby's birth, the world was changed. You know, I don't blame, I don't blame anyone whose eyes glaze over when they read the Bible's genealogies, all right? True confessions, I do too. You get into Leviticus and Numbers or wherever they're found, and name after name and number after number, and most of us, I think, if I ask for a show of hands, would say, yes, we skim, right? Because they're just hard to follow and understand. But I want you to know that if you dig into the text of the Bible, if you dig into the story of the Bible, you realize that each and every one of those genealogies is there for a reason, or God wouldn't have put it in his word for us to see. But I would also suggest that few of the genealogies in the Bible are more significant and more glorious than the one that finishes out Ruth's story here. But before I tell you why, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of the the summary. I don't expect you to necessarily remember this, but I want to remind you of the, of the way in which I summarized the book of Ruth way back in week number one, the, the first time we looked at this. Because I told you then that, that the, the book of Ruth is really, it's the story of one ordinary, otherwise unnoteworthy, we might even say insignificant family that was living in a time of moral chaos, of pathetic leadership, of meager faith and human suffering. It was the days of the judges. Everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And this was one ordinary family among millions of other families. I said, that's the background of the story of Ruth. And then, I don't know if you recall this, but I asked you a question. I said that, that in a way, what the book of Ruth asks us, the question it asks us is this, does one ordinary human life matter? Does one ordinary human family matter? Does God care? And and does God use ordinary people? And by now, I hope you've realized that the answer to that question is yes. I I imagine you agreed with it positionally back then. I hope that now, through the experience of studying Ruth's story, you have embraced the answer yes to that question even more fully. Because here's the thing. When at the end of this book, and admittedly, it's a strange way to end such a beautiful story. But when you look at verse 18 and you see that, 
that Obed's roots are traced back to, look at verse 18, to someone named Perez. Now here's the sequence. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel, it began with Abraham. He had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, one of whom was named Judah, the tribe of Judah, occupied the land of Judah. Judah had a son whose name was Perez. And by tracing Obed's roots back to Perez, down through Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashan, Salmon, Boaz, and then from Obed to Jesse and to David, what we discover is this, this otherwise ordinary, unnoteworthy, in the eyes of the world, insignificant family was part of a much grander story. A much grander story. That, oh, by the way, if, if you go to where this genealogy is continued in Matthew chapter 1, you discover resulted in the birth of another baby boy in the little town of Bethlehem 1,000 years later. A little baby boy who changed the world more than any other and who's still in the business of changing lives today. Here's my point. The end of the book of Ruth is far from the end of the story. Far from the end of the story. And here's what I want you to know as we bring it to a close. As a follower of Jesus, you're part of that story too. As a follower of Jesus, you're part of the story too. Because here's what I discovered as I was just really kind of thinking and praying it through this week. I realized now that I've completed my study of it for the time being. Here's what I discovered. That the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, it's, it, it really, if you look at it structurally, it's a seven-act story, a seven-act play, if you will. But what it is, really, it's a seven-act, seven-part living illustration of Romans 8.28, a verse most of you, many of you know, many of you love. Let's put it on the screen behind me. I think the story of Ruth is Romans 8.28. We know that God causes, everybody say all things, God causes all things to work together for good. Even bad things? Apparently so. Even unwelcome things? Apparently so. Even things that, that hurt and make us cry? Apparently so. God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. I want to just leave that up there for our last couple of moments. Because here's the thing. The book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, is a story with a happy ending. Praise God, right? But I think what we've discovered along the way is it is a happy ending that was arrived at through many dangers, toils, and snares. Through a lot of trouble, a lot of heartache, a lot of challenge. And any one of those dangers, toils, and snares would have been enough. And we probably would have understood if either Ruth or Naomi had just turned away, thrown up their hands, and said, I'm done. I quit. But neither Ruth nor Naomi did. Even though, as, as Naomi confessed, we already looked at that verse back in chapter 1, she knew that her trials, that, that they were orchestrated by God, that, that nothing could touch her life. Just as, listen to me, nothing can touch your life that did not first pass through the hands of God's permissive will. Even though she knew God had orchestrated all that she was experiencing, she didn't give up. And neither did Ruth. Instead, Rather than running away, they leaned into what God was doing. And leaning in sometimes is hard. Leaning in sometimes hurts. It means being vulnerable. But they leaned into what God was doing. And what did they find? They found themselves carried along. Cared for. And blessed beyond anything they could ever have imagined. 
What I'm saying is this, by obediently cooperating with God's providential plan, they, these two ordinary widowed women, along with Boaz and baby Obed, changed the world. God's up to the same thing in your life this morning. You can't see it. You don't know it. You probably, some of you are arguing with me right now in your head. You don't believe it. But the Bible assures us that whatever's going on in your life, however good, however bad, however confusing, is part of a plan he has orchestrated. He is orchestrating. He is working out. And the Bible promises that one day it will. Everybody say, it will. Say it again. Say it again. It will result in praise, honor, glory, and joy at the throne of Jesus in the company of all of God's other people whose lives he was at work in as well. And all he asks of you this morning is a decision, a choice, which is, as today's big idea says, to rest in his providence and walk closely with Jesus. That's what he asks. Rest in his providence, walk closely with Jesus. Father, I'm so thankful for your word that despite what some of us have been told and maybe even some of us have or even today do thought your word is not a list of rules after rules after rules after rules but father it's it's really and ruth is maybe the preeminent example it's a love story of a holy god for unholy people of a god who takes ordinary people like us and does extraordinary things and father we don't always see the extraordinary we don't always see the plan. It was Obed's grandson. It was decades later that David went to the throne. But you were still working out a plan because you were God, you were good, you were faithful, and you are in charge. Father, I thank you for this story being an assurance, a living illustration that we belong to a Savior who really does work all things together for good to those who love you and have been called according to your purpose. Father, what a, what a comfort it is for many of us today in our seasons of trial and heartache. What, a, what an encouragement it is to those of us who are thriving to say, God's up to something good. Father, I pray that you would replace our sorrow with joy, our, our unbelief, our disbelief with confident, quiet trust. Father, I pray for those of us who even this morning are inclined, maybe not to run away, but to wander away, to instead lean into what you're doing and say, I, I don't know what the future holds, but I, I trust the one who holds the future. And then in your own good time, in your own good way, see you work and trust that even if we don't see it, that another generation will. And when we're all home around the throne of Jesus, it'll all make sense. And we will say without any shred of reservation, it is well with our souls. Father, take the things of truth that we have explored here this morning and seal them to our hearts. And let all the rest just fade away so that we leave looking to, rejoicing in, trusting Jesus alone, in whose name we pray.